0: Well, uh, the concept of faithfulness is something that we're very familiar with in our Christian lives. Uh, for us as Christian believers, being faithful or, or being steadfast in our in our belief and then the living that corresponds to that belief, uh, that, that central reality for us as followers of God is something very crucial. We want to walk in His way. We desire to conform our lives to His truth. We we joyfully yield to the good news about what He's ultimately done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Faithfulness to God is something that's central for us as Christian believers. And while faithfulness is central to us, uh, this realm of faithfulness also reflects an area where we can have significant ups and downs. Uh, C.S. Lewis described this as, as the undulating waves of Christian experience. Uh, so we can have ups and downs in our lives as we follow Jesus. And we know this. Uh, there, are, there are those seasons in life where godly perseverance and faithfulness is very strong for us. So uh, prayers come quickly and easily. Uh, daily reliance upon the Lord is a sweet thing. We, we feel obedience maybe to be a matter of, of continual daily joy more than a kind of disciplined uh, routine. There, there are times when faithfulness just comes a little easier. But our lives of faith do have their ups and downs. And there are those seasons where faithfulness doesn't come so easy. There are seasons where being steadfast in our trust and in our belief and in our obedience before God can be much more difficult. Uh, and no doubt, as we drop into the context of 1 Samuel, we're being immersed in a historical context where faithfulness to God is no easy pursuit. In the book of Samuel, like we've said, we discover the people of God are in a situation of a very pervasive spiritual decline. As the book of Judges describes a scene, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Uh, so even though the Lord had shown Himself strong in terms of bringing His people redemption from bondage in Egypt, and even though the Lord had shown Himself faithful by providing for that wilderness generation in their wanderings after the Exodus, and even though the Lord had showed Himself uh, to be the promise-keeping God and the strong God who fights for His people as He he, uh, provides victory for them going into the land of Canaan, even though time and time again God has shown His extraordinary kindness and power and preserving uh, grace to Israel, Uh, Instead, the people of Israel, at least a number of them, the majority of them, seem to be determined uh, to go in their own way. And in situations like that, uh, while while some do, of course, desire to be faithful, we do think of Hannah and Elkanah and their family, they're desiring to be faithful during this time. but, But in seasons that are, generally speaking, very contrary to God, when faithfulness can uh, seem to be a far cry from the normal spiritual realities that are being experienced, uh, it's very easy to find ourselves in a discouraged position with regard to our own perseverance. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 73, uh, he, he reflects on a uh, struggle similar to this at another time in Israel's history when he, when he says, you know, why, I, I look around and I have to wonder why have I bothered keeping myself pure? Why have I bothered going in the way of righteousness? After all, the people who are so contrary to God, they're the ones who seem to be doing so well. They're the ones who are making themselves fat with all of these things. And here I am struggling. Why have I bothered uh, to persevere in the way of holiness? The psalmist recognizes that struggle. And at this time in Israel's history, those who did remain faithful to Yahweh, they would have felt this pressure. And no doubt... Uh, these are kinds of pressures we face ourselves. How, how do we think about faithfulness to God in contexts that are deeply contrary to God and His way? Uh, we have to wrestle with, this, with these things, even in the context uh, with which we live today. What kinds of truth do we need to have secured in our minds in order to underpin our own persistence in the way of God, though the way of God may be uh, denied, rejected, maligned, even mocked uh, by those who are around us? And as we come to verses 11 to 36 of 1 Samuel 2, we have some very specific help along these lines. Uh, In in these verses, the narrator sets up what is ultimately a contrast, it's a consistent contrast between two groups throughout these verses. Uh, Group one is the boy Samuel and his family, Hannah his mom and Elkanah, uh, Samuel's family. The second group is the old priest Eli and his family, his son. And in the course of contrasting these two families and their posture before the Lord, we're given a great deal of help with regard to our own faithful living. Uh, we're given help to develop a mindset of continued faithfulness, even when things are contrary to God all around. Which, of course, is something, again, it's timely for us to think through. Uh, we live in a season, we live in a time when, when doing what is right in our own eyes is the commended moral right of the day. In fact, the only moral wrong is to say that doing what is right in your own eyes is wrong. That's the only moral wrong that's really upheld in our day. Our, our culture is one which feeds on self-interest, a desire to fulfill what I feel is best for me. This is going on all around us. Everybody absolutely does what is right in their own eyes. And the only immorality that's present is to say that we shouldn't do such things. And so we live in a context very much like the initial context here that we, that we discover in 1 Samuel, albeit so many cultural differences. We live in a time when people are doing what is right in their own eyes, and there's a temptation even for us as we engage in that to be drawn out simply maybe by the, by the attractiveness of the masses around us. It seems like this is the way it's going, maybe this is the way we should be going, and yet we find ourselves called back to faithfulness by the truth that's in a passage such as this. Uh, so, so we're going to take this section in chapter 2 uh, in three parts. Again, our overarching question is how do we think about faithfulness to God in contexts that are so contrary to God? Uh, that's, that's the big question. And, uh, and in coming to the text, the first thing that we can be encouraged in, and we'll see this in verses 11 to 17, the first thing we can be encouraged in with regard to our own faithfulness is knowing that in the context of unfaithfulness, when ungodliness seems to abound, Faithfulness does still exist. It does continue. It's not completely gone. So just keep an eye on verses 11 to 17 as we work through this. Um, Often when we're in circumstances of being tempted away from from following the Lord uh, faithfully, one of the primary elements we do experience is a felt sense of loneliness. Um, whether it's in our working environment, whether it's in situations of personal relationships that are, that are meaningful but strained, whether it's in the context of a classroom where uh, the teacher has called out Christianity, uh, deriding it for some reason, and we recognize we're the only one in the room who bristles against something like that. Um, uh, situations uh, can, can come to us as we seek to follow Jesus that leave us feel very alone while we desire to remain faithful. And one thing we can be helped to see is that we're not as alone as we might think. Uh, so we pick up the narrative in verse 11, uh, which at first pass, when we read verse 11, it might seem like nothing more than a, than a connecting statement just to help move the chapter along. So in verse 11, we read that Elkanah went home to Ramah, uh, but the boys served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. We read that, and uh, again, it just might seem like a nice connecting phrase there for us, a nice connecting piece of information. Uh, Because we have just finished reading about how Hannah has been crying out to the Lord for a son. She's uh, been going before the Lord in her place of significant need. And we see how the Lord has answered her prayer. He's given her this boy, uh, Samuel, and she made a vow to him, a vow to the Lord, that if she uh, would be given this boy, uh, that she would dedicate him to the Lord's own service. And the time has come for that. They've brought Samuel now to, to serve there at the temple. And Hannah sung her song of praise in the beginning of chapter 2. And so now they're, they're going back home. Uh, her and her family are returning, leaving the boy to serve there the, uh, in the presence of Eli the priest. And, and again, at first pass, it just seems like a necessary link that holds the narrative together. But if we think about this a little more and notice some nuance here, we notice that there's something more when we reflect on the significant faithfulness that's represented on Hannah's part in terms of, in terms of what she's done here as she leaves and while her boy Samuel remains because we know that that Hannah wanted a son so badly. That's obviously a main thrust in the totality of the narrative so far. She's been mocked by Penina year after year because she hasn't had a son, and so Hannah's prayed, and she's promised that if God gives her a son, she'll give that son back to the service of God. She's made this solemn vow. God's granted the request. Hannah's filled with joy, and she's not just filled with joy, but she's now also fulfilled her promise, and left Samuel in temple service. And we just want to catch the significance of this. This is no small thing on the part of Hannah. She's giving up the son whom she's longed for. It's an extraordinary expression of both faithfulness and sacrifice on the part of Hannah. In the Levitical law, Moses speaks about the seriousness of making a vow to God. A vow to God must be kept, and Hannah as extremely difficult, As this must have been, she kept her vow. She brought Samuel to Shiloh and left him to serve there, which is is really amazing. and, And we could almost give Hannah a pass if she would have decided that while she was at Shiloh, this was a perfect time to renegotiate things with the Lord right? Okay, God, I, I, I did have this son. You gave him to me, but but how about you give another son? I'll keep this one. He is, after all, my firstborn son. This is a very special thing that has happened, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, maybe you could give me another son, and I'll send him off in your service, but I just really like Samuel, and, and I would miss him so much to leave him here. I might just step back a little bit from that promise I made. Though I'll maybe re-up it with a second son down the road. Could you just give me that, and we'll go on from there. We, we, we could certainly understand if Hannah did that. That, that would be something we could identify with this this uh, reality that she longed to keep her son with her but she doesn't do that at all she remains faithful there's no indication in the text at all that hannah's waffling on her promise on her vow that she's made before the lord so as her family goes home from worshiping at shiloh the boy stays there and serves the lord with the priest of uh, eli So again, we have this extraordinary personal sacrifice and and commitment to obedience to God on the part of Hannah. Actually, it's an extraordinary commitment to the Levitical law, what God has commanded about vows. Hannah is obeying. She made one, and she's keeping her vow before the Lord. This is extraordinary faithfulness for her, and it would come at deep cost, just emotionally. So, So we keep that situation in mind, and now we compare that to what we have next in verses 12 to 17. And by the time we get to 17, you'll see the narrator wants us to compare it with the the language that he uses. But we'll get to that in just a second. Just look at verses 12 to 17, because there we have the exact opposite of Hannah's faithfulness. So so in these next verses, instead of of faithfulness and, and sacrificial obedience to the Lord, we're introduced to this case of irreverent greed and exploitation before the Lord. It is the exact opposite of everything faithful. Uh, so, so verse 12, we're reintroduced to, to Eli's sons. Now now we know their name from chapter 1. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And, and already we've got a little bit of an inclination that something's off because those are Egyptian names. Who, who names their boys after this horrific place that your ancestors have been rescued from in, in terms of that, that redemptive scenario? But, but the boys, they've been given Egyptian names, so we're already clued in that maybe something's going to be off with them a little bit. And here we're just told straight up that these were wicked men. Literally, that description in verse 12 can be translated as, as, maybe a little more softly, sons of uselessness or sons of worthlessness. But really, it's, it's sons of wickedness, what we're being told there. It's actually a technical term in the Scriptures that, that appears throughout the Old Testament. It describes idolaters, it describes liars, all of these different things. Sons of uselessness. Which actually, if you remember back to Eli's interaction with Hannah, when he thought that she was drunk there in the temple, when she was praying so fervently, he actually uses this language. He calls her a woman of worthlessness. The irony is, of course, she was very righteous in her pursuit. His own sons are the ones who are falling into this category of extraordinary, uh, extraordinary wickedness. Um, so here we have the sons of Eli. We're told they're sons of worthlessness. And then we're also told, very literally in the Hebrew text, that they didn't know the Lord. That's verse, verse 12 as well. They didn't know the Lord. So so here, we just put this together. We have priests of God who don't truly acknowledge and recognize the living God. That's obviously a problem. Priests who don't know the Lord, right? The irony of that's not lost on us. And, And they're priests who are themselves sons of worthlessness. They're wicked men. And then the narrator goes on, not just to tell us that this is true about Eli's sons, but he shows us how this is true about the sons if we read on. So again, we have to remember for a moment the setting there uh, where Eli is this main priest. We might call him the senior priest at Shiloh. And Shiloh, during this time in Israel's history, was the main center for worship. So the tabernacle had been set up there. The the Ark of the Covenant had been brought there. This is the main center for the worship of of Yahweh in the land. And while the people of Israel were, were often taken up in idolatry and doing what was right in their own eyes, that often included sprinkling some worship of God in there too. Because the people of Israel, they, they they were happy to imbibe in the pluralistic religious culture of the people who had been in the land around them. So so they might take some Canaanite deity worship over here, but of course too, they could see some value in worshiping Yahweh as well. Um, so they had no problem with 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 some worship of Yahweh, just like they would worship the Astra or Baal or whatever it'll end up being. So it's no surprise to find them there at Shiloh offering sacrifice. And, uh, and, of course, there would be faithful people like Samuel's own family who, who would come there too. Though it does seem that the faithful were very few during this time. Uh, but in the context of sacrifice there in Shiloh, uh, provision is made for the priests in the Levitical law. And what Moses wrote down in Leviticus, uh, that the priests were granted a portion of the sacrifices for their own meals. This is part of how the priests uh, were sustained. But as we read in this text... Instead of the priests following the law and taking their portion in the proper way and at the proper time, instead the priests, namely Eli's boys, would would, uh, send their servant to the place where the meat was being prepared, and instead of waiting for the process of preparation to be complete, so before the food was even cooked, the servant was instructed by Hophni and Phinehas to take portions for the priests right away. In fact, you see in verse 15 that this would be done even before the fat was burned which we wonder why I include that detail, except that that's actually a really important detail because in Leviticus 7, Moses addresses this kind of behavior directly. It reflects a kind of of greediness, a a kind of uncontrollable um, uh, greediness on the part of the priests uh, to do what they're doing. Moses says, if anyone eats animal fat from the food offering presented to the Lord, the person who eats it is to be cut off from the people. So there's great greed present on the part of Eli's sons. They want the tasty portions. And it's not just greedy, but there's this deep disregard for the law of God, and there's a deep abuse of their spiritual position as priests. Because in verse 16, we see that the sons of Eli actually sanction the strong arming of worshipers to make sure they get the meat they want. So verse 16, if the worshiper gives the priest servant any grief, if they say, well, we, you can't have the fat yet, because they know Leviticus 7, if they say, this is not how we're supposed to do it, even if they say that, the servant is supposed to say to them, hand it over right now or I'll take it by force. So so you have this total disaster in terms of a representation of Israel's leadership here. Not only are they just basically selfish and greedy, but they're selfish and greedy with a total indifference to the very regulations of God that they're called to implement and safeguard as priests. And then with that, or even maybe worse than that, they're not only indifferent toward the regulations of worship, but they're actually forcing others to break the regulations of worship as well. It just doesn't get any worse than this, what they're doing. These are the priests, but it's total spiritual disaster. And then in verse 17, we have the narrator's explanation of what all this means. Verse 17, which is important. We're told, the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, with that in mind, we have to notice the connection, or rather, maybe the disconnection or the contrast of what's pictured here. Back in verse 11, what are we told about Samuel? Well, We're told the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. That reflected personal sacrifice, reverential obedience, all that stuff on the part of Hannah, and even the boy Samuel himself. He's being compliant with this. Jump down to verse 17. What are we told about Hophni and Phinehas and their servant? Well, it's interesting, the wording there. The servant sin, actually it's the same word for boy, uh, back in verse 11. So, So there's a parallel. The servant sin or the boy sin... Was severe in the presence of the Lord. So, so, Samuel, he's back in verse eleven. He's serving in the presence of the Lord there with Eli, the priest at the temple. Hophni and Phinehas, and their little scheme. We have we have extraordinary sin before the Lord. There's a there's a contrast that the narrator is setting up for us there, and this contrast is significant, especially as we go back to consider our initial question. When, when we think about how how do we consider faithfulness to God when we live in a context that can be deeply contrary to God. What we're given here is very helpful here. uh, Because in verses 11 to 17, we have this comparison that helps to answer our question in, in that we can say, while pervasive spiritual decay may be presently around us, faithfulness to God, as we're showing here, it still exists. It's not totally gone. So so you see this simultaneously happening at the temple at Shiloh. On the one hand, you have deep violation of God's way on the part of Hophni and Phinehas. And as we read on, we'll see this isn't just just happening there, but it's publicly known. It's very, very obvious to everybody around how bad these guys are and how bad what they're doing is. There is deep and public violation of God's way going on at Shiloh. And at the same time, there's a deep commitment. We might even call it a deep but quiet commitment to God's way, reflected there on the part of Hannah leaving her boy uh, to serve in these ways nobody would have known about no one would have known about Samuel wandering around there who's that little guy running around what, what why is he even here all we have is that he served in the presence of Eli Eli knows what's going on he's probably the only one while the while the Hoffney and Phineas their sin is extraordinary public, extraordinarily public everybody sees it it seems that the whole world is is, is going into decay everything is, is is exploding this is as bad as it could possibly get except that when things seem to be at their absolute lowest, we're shown in a narrative like this, quiet as it may be, that faithfulness is still present. And and this is especially important to think about given the context of the spiritual leadership situation here. Just if we think about that. Because at this point, uh, more times than I like to think about, I've had conversations with people who've been under ministries where the pastors either fouled out morally or decided that for some reason or another they decided they weren't Christians anymore. And that is extremely devastating to people, as it should be and as we would expect. But one of the big concerns that follows, the questions that come, is that if this is how it's going with the leadership in the Christian community, how could I ever expect to, to make it myself? If the leadership is fouling out and quitting, if the leadership can't be faithful, what does this say about my own prospects for faithfulness as a follower of God? And a section like this can be so extremely helpful to reflect on because here leadership is fouling out enormously. They are a total disaster before the Lord with regard to the religious tasks they're called to. They're a public disaster. They're a personal disaster. But what we also see is that even in the same immediate context of extremely unfaithful leadership, faithfulness is present. It does exist. There at the temple, while surely they're going about mostly unnoticed, the boy Samuel is serving the Lord. He's a very real representation of his godly mother's vow fulfilled and God's maintaining hand of faithfulness among his people, which we'll see in Samuel as the narrative goes on, is extremely significant with regard to his life. It may seem like a small depiction of faithfulness at the moment, but we can be sure it's genuine and true in and God's season. So we can just be helped by this. Because when it comes to thinking about faithfulness to God in contexts that are deeply contrary to God, even in the context of unfaithfulness within leadership among God's people in the church, we need to be mindful of this. Perseverance does continue. It does. Just because one or two in a prominent position may be total disasters even if it might seem like things are falling apart like we quoted from that Atlantic article a couple weeks ago that was decrying the condition of evangelicalism in America right now. We can look around and have all these reasons we might find ourselves discouraged. We have to remember the faithful do remain and the faithful do keep going. We may not see it, it may not always be so flashy, but there's Hannah and Samuel given to us as a picture that in the midst of deep corruption, even among spiritual leadership, there's still perseverance and faithfulness. And so it's a good reminder to us, faithfulness continues as we think about a living in context that can be contrary to God. And so we have that, we have that first of all, and then secondly, as we keep moving through the text, we see that faithfulness doesn't just continue to exist, But faithfulness also benefits. It benefits. And this comes back to that comment we made earlier about Psalm 73, where it seems like, you know, the wicked all around, they're doing so well. Why would we bother continuing to pursue holiness and faithfulness to God? That's the psalmist's big question at the beginning of Psalm 73. And that's no doubt questions uh, we could be asking, looking at the corrupt priesthood under Eli. Because why, why bother being careful with my sacrifices? Why even, why even give it any trouble? The priests are getting fat off their disobedience quite literally and surely there's, there's not benefit to our continuing in a diligent pursuit of God's ways. Why not just do what's right in our own eyes? It seems to be working out fine for them. But then we look at verses 18 to 26 now and as we see there's another contrast that's presented that helps us adjust our thinking or at least solidify our thinking in a useful way. So verses 18 to 26, we have a court to see how the narrator uh, pits these. I encourage you to follow along with this if you can in your Bibles because we'll have to jump back and forth to see how the narrator uh, pits these two situations in contrast to each other. Um, but but it's particularly pointed there in terms of, of the family life of Hannah being compared with the family life of Eli. So, so let's just look at look at a few things here in terms of how this has worked out. Um, the first... Contrast, we can call it something like, like a contrast between expressed and, and ongoing love versus public shame. So, so verses 18 and 19, we read that, that Samuel served in the Lord's presence, and each year his mother made him a robe and took it to him when they worshipped. So, so as difficult as it was for Hannah to leave her boy... Hannah still had joy in expressing a mother's love year by year as she saw him. We see a wonderful expression there of Hannah's care, her thought for the boy, concern and concern for him as she came to worship year after year. So there's love expressed there, albeit probably still difficult for Hannah. It is a joyful expression as she continues to fulfill her commitment to God in that way. And then look at verses 22 to 24. There's Eli. And as a father, he's not experiencing refreshing opportunities to express love to his boys, but instead they are a source of very open shame for him. So so we're told in those verses that Hophni and Phinehas are sleeping with the women who served at the place of worship. Uh, Obviously that's a deep defilement of God's way, severe sin going on there. And not only were they doing that, and this is actually troubling because this was what seems to really bother Eli. Not only are they doing that, but he says in verse 23, I've heard about these evil actions from all these people. Right? So, so more literally, we could actually translate to say, I keep on hearing about all these evil actions from all these people. It was a continual thing. So, so Eli can't go to the coffee shop in town without having a few locals come up to him and say, hey, Eli, your sons are doing these, these terrible things again and again. They're so foul. Uh, the, the whole town's talking about it. I just wanted to make sure you knew. It doesn't really seem that the, the, the wickedness of his sons per se are bothering him. It's just the fact that he's put to shame by his sons and the things that they're doing. He's very bothered by that. So, so there's this contrast between the ongoing opportunities for expressions of love for, uh, as, as faithful Hannah makes her boy a new cloak every year. She goes and visits him. What a wonderful expression of love. She no doubt would have taken great joy in the presence of her boy Samuel as she brought him those annual gifts. That contrasted with the extraordinary public shame of the unfaithful here as Eli uh, speaks about it being evident to all and so and so bothered by that. So so there's that contrast. There's expressed love, but contrasted with public shame for the unfaithful. And then there's also this contrast between blessing and rebuke. It's interesting, in Eli's priestly function, he blesses Hannah and Elkanah when they come for for their annual visits in chapter 2, verse 20. But then to his own family, Eli doesn't speak words of blessing. Instead, he rebukes his wicked sons in verses 23 to 25 because of their actions. So blessing for the faithful, but specific rebuke for the unfaithful there. And then, and then there's the presence of life with Hannah and her family, very much contrasted with the judgment of death in Eli's family. And this is big in these verses. Verse 20, Elkanah blesses Hannah, and in verse 21, remember, Hannah had been barren, but now the Lord paid attention to Hannah, and she had more children. So she has three sons and two daughters. It's amazing the blessing of life that has come into their home as she's been faithful to the Lord. Extraordinary blessing and a point of joy, no doubt. For Eli, though, things are exactly different. So he rebukes his boys for their flagrant sin, but then we read that Hophni and Phinehas' violation is so severe and continual that the Lord's judgment has already been settled against them. At the end of verse 25, we read, They would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Their judgment was settled and done in the eyes of God. He would put them to death. So in Hannah's household, there was faithfulness and blessing of life. In Eli's household, there was extreme unfaithfulness and the severe judgment of death. Those boys are done. So, so we see this, we see this all, the, all the more as the contrast is stated really plainly in verses 25 and 26 where we're told that the Lord intends to kill Hophni and Phinehas, but Samuel, by contrast, the text says that, by contrast, Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. It's the same phraseology there that Luke, the gospel writer, uh, employs to speak about Jesus as a a boy growing in maturity and wisdom under God. Samuel is growing in this righteous life while Hophni and Phinehas are consigned to death. So so we put all this together and and what's being highlighted here? Well, unfaithfulness is so pervasive in Israel Even the priests themselves, in fact, most of all, the priests themselves seem to be getting away with greedy, lustful, God-defying living. But when we really back up and look at what's going on here, what do we discover? Well, even in deeply contrary conditions to God, faithfulness doesn't just exist, but it it continues to bring blessing. We have this loving family. We have a, a family filled with maturing life, a son with a good reputation with both God and people. So this just reminds us that faithfulness requires us to look at the world with a different perspective. The immediate satisfaction of greed and lust and rejection of God's word, the immediate satisfaction and even benefit to some degree would be visible and even maybe desirable. Hophni and Phinehas had some pretty good meals, no doubt. Right? We actually see in a moment that even though Eli rebukes his boys, when the prophet of God is going to come to him here in a minute, we're still told that he got fat with their food. So he was rebuking him, but he was still saying, slide, that plate over. Right? It's enticing to go contrary to God, or at least it might have seemed that way at first pass. But like the Proverbs always remind us, things contrary to God that can seem so inviting, what do they do? They ultimately lead down to death. Right? However, faithfulness brings life. Which, which is always a necessary reminder for it, and it continue, for us, and it continues to be a timely reminder for us. It is the truth that the psalmist in Psalm 73 finally comes to realize when he says, "I came into the house of God, and then I discerned their end, that then I, then I could see the end of the wicked, when, when the true way of life and the personhood of God is set before us, while unfaithfulness might be present all around, God's way proves to be the good way, the desirable way, the blessed way. And there are so many examples we could take from this, not, not just from ancient Israel, but in our own day so clearly. And maybe one of the most prominent right now uh, we, we can speak to is, is, is the blatant examples that come to us in the realm of the sexual climate of our day. So so between the, the hookup potential of dating apps and the notion that somehow sexual satisfaction is the greatest of all satisfaction, we live in a time... In which, in which sex without meaningful connection, not, not least of all, without any kind of marital commitment, that is lauded in our day as a wonderful expression of self and something that should be pursued no matter what. After all, it's a wonderful, it is just a wonderful time, time, uh, way to fulfill who I really am and those desires are there and I should act on them. And yet, this is so interesting. Again, I was just reading a scholar this week who spoke about the most sexually satisfied demographic in the United States, and this has been the most sexually satisfied demographic in the United States since they started asking these questions in the 1990s. Do you know what the most satisfied demographic in the United States is? Since the 1990s, this has been the case. It, it, it is not 27-year-old professionals living it up through Tinder. It is middle-aged, married, Christian conservatives. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because faithfulness to God brings blessing. There's life there. There's wholeness and genuine intimacy there. There's God's good, God's good purposes there. And then and this is key if we're going to be persevering in faithfulness in contexts that are contrary to God. We need to be reminded that not only does faithfulness continue to exist, so we're not done, we're not alone, any of those things, but we also need to remember that faithfulness benefits We see it in the contrast of these verses: The mother's love, the family's additional children, the son's uh, godly growth, all of this set against Eli's public shame and the the total disaster and ultimate death of his boys. Faithfulness to God brings blessing in life. So, in in, in contexts that are contrary to God, we, we can be helped to remember faithfulness continues to exist. We can remember that faithfulness benefits. Finally, we'll also say That faithfulness is something that is ultimately guaranteed by God Himself. Faithfulness is guaranteed by God Himself. And we have this in verses 27 to 36. Um, We'll move through this quickly. We can't uh, camp on all the details that are here. But in in this section you see how this man of God comes to Eli. In the Old Testament, uh, man of God is a technical term that refers to a prophet. Uh, So we have the prophet coming to Eli the priest. We don't know his name. We don't know who this is. uh, But he clearly comes with God's word. And he comes rebuking Eli in verses 27 to 29 uh, because of Eli's conduct as a priest. So, so the prophet recounts that while well, Eli uh, comes in the family line of Aaron, whom God had designated uh, the, the priestly family in Israel, well, that has been the case, Eli didn't fulfill his duties, and instead he despised the Lord's sacrifices by honoring his wicked sons more than he honored the Lord. So verse 29 makes it clear that that while Eli might not have directly been involved in his son's greedy schemes around the sacrificial meals at least, Eli, we're told here, did make himself fat with those corrupt practices. And God holds him accountable. He's rebuked by the prophet for that. And he's not just rebuked, but in verses 30 to 34, the prophet also says Eli's household will be judged because of his behavior. So so the line of Eli's family that came uh, from Aaron would be cut off from the priesthood, the prophet said. There were two lines that came from Aaron. This is Eli's line over here. It's going to be cut off, uh, which is exactly the fulfillment of Leviticus 7. It's what Leviticus 7, you remember, says what's going to happen. If you mess with the sacrifices of God, you're going to be cut off from the people. So it's just interesting to notice the prophet's ministry here is not to come with some super secret knowledge of God, but it's simply to come say what Eli should have known all along. Hey, Leviticus 7 says that, and now it's happening to you. So he confirms God's promise of judgment on the wicked priests. Eli's family is going to be cut off, and not just cut off even here, but we see how because they've dishonored the Lord, Eli's family members won't even reach old age, and they'll see distress in the place of worship, which they should have been watching over, even while others in Israel are flourishing. So their priestly legacy is going to be one of shame and sorrow, and now a shortened life. Um, and, and as a sign that this is all going to take place, the prophet says Eli, uh, Eli's boys are both going to die on the same day, which we'll get to here fairly soon in the narrative. This is going to take place, both boys dead on the same day. So, so it's, it's a really heavy word here in terms of the, the fact that unfaithfulness has brought significant judgment on Eli's family legacy of the priesthood, uh, so much so that they're actually not going to be fat with the food that they've, been, that they've been taking irreverently, but they're actually going to be beggars of bread at best, is what he says. However, this heavy word of judgment is not the final word because we read in verse 35 and on that the Lord says he will raise up a faithful priest for himself. And that faithful priest, the Lord says, will do whatever is in my heart and mind. Just contrast that with with judges for a second. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. What's the faithful priest of God going to be like? He's going to be doing everything that's in God's heart and mind and a lasting dynasty will be established for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. This is going to take place, verse 36, while anyone left in Eli's priestly family is going to be begging for a piece of bread. So, in the, in the immediate context of application here, and the upcoming history of Israel, this is going to be uh, reflected, it will be finally fulfilled in the rise of the, of the priest Zadok under Solomon. You can read about that in, in 1 Kings 2 if you want to. Um, But but on a much bigger scale, there is significant truth here for our encouragement, and, and it is here along these lines in that a context that seems so deeply contrary to God in terms of unfaithfulness, it's not going to ultimately prevail. And why is it not going to ultimately prevail? Well, because the Lord is going to provide a faithful priest. He's going to provide the one who would serve His people well in the capacity of making a way to worship God instead of bringing destruction to the worship of God. And of course, as we, as we trace out this priestly line, we know that, that the best of men are men at best, and, and down through the rest of Israel's history, uh, while some priests do reflect verse 35, they do seek to do what is in God's heart and mind to some degree. Ultimately, we know that there's only one priest who will come and do the will of God perfectly. Uh, we, we know, that certainly, this is a promise that climaxes in the Lord Jesus, even as we think about all that we've studied in Hebrews over the last couple of years. Jesus is the one who's going to come, and He doesn't desecrate the people's sacrifices to God. But what does He do? Well, He offers Himself as the perfect sacrifice to, uh, of, of God. He's the exact opposite of these unfaithful priests. Jesus came, and He didn't co-opt His power for selfish gain. But instead he exercised his power in bearing the price for our sins upon his own shoulders as he hung on the cross. Jesus didn't come and reject the will of God, but he came confessing. What did he confess? I came to do the will of my Father. All that's in the heart and mind of God the Father, Jesus came to do. Jesus came and didn't violate and corrupt God's people's worship, but instead, and this is where we ended with Hebrews, didn't it? Instead, what does Jesus do? Well, He opens up our way for our whole lives to be acceptable worship uh, before God. This is what God is going to ultimately provide for His people. Jesus came, not just as an ultimate faithful priest, but He came and did what is necessary to bring all God's people into the fold of faithful perseverers with Him out in front as our head. So he purifies us as this better priest and empowers us for lives of worship as our priest. He sustains us by daily mercy and he doesn't violate the framework of God's blessing but guarantees God's blessing by his own blood. This is the truth that leaves us pressing on. This ultimately is the truth that leaves us in the context of the worshiping community of the saints. So oftentimes it can be, well, the church, I've seen so much there that's contrary to what what the Bible says, however they're interpreting that or whatever it might mean. I've seen all this, I was hurt by the church and these kinds of things. Why are we together as God's people? Is it because we are an incorruptible group? Is it because we always have it all together and never bring offense and never foul out and all of those kinds of things? No. Why do we all remain? Why do we all persevere? Why do we all press on? It's because we have the better priests. He's the one we have. And because he's the one we have, we have the necessary equipment um, to persevere in a way that ultimately uh, brings us to our final rest. And so all of this put together, it brings us a note of encouragement, even in darker times when it seems like uh, contrariness to God is all around, when it seems like it would be so much easier to walk in ways uh, that are, that are uh, different than what God calls us to, ultimately violations of what God calls us to, What we discover as we come to the Scriptures is that this is the way of life and this has always been the way of life. This is the way of life Jesus came to purchase for us and this is the way of life that Jesus preserves us in. And with that in our minds, while we may still feel alone at times, we may still face the undulating nature of the spiritual life, the undulating waves, the ups and downs, those kinds of things. We recognize that ultimately our commitment is steadfast because our priest is steadfast and he's the one who will maintain us as we go on in his way. And so maybe just that point is renewing for you this morning, a reminder that oh, while well, things may seem contrary around us, temptations may draw us away. As we look at Christ and see the significance of who He is, as we appeal to Christ and ask for the mercy that He promises, we're ultimately maintained. Whether the days are riding the crest of the waves of our spiritual life or whether they're down in the trough, He's the one who maintains us and we, and we rest in that. We rest in that in an extraordinary way. And we're thankful Uh, to God's word, which brings us a reminder of what it means to press on through trying times. Let's pray together. So, Father, we ask that you would uh, train us by your word. We know you bring us forth by your word of truth, and you also maintain us by your word of truth. Maintain us today. Um, Give us a a love for the perseverance that you call us to, and may we rest in the fact that Jesus ultimately helps bring us along as the one who uh, never at any point, in any way, brings a violation of your way of life, but instead has purchased your way of life for us and now maintains us in that forever. We're thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.